Hey, welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel, joined with Elias Randall. Elias, a lot has happened in the last week or two since since we've done our last show. We had a historic rate hike with the European Central Bank. And uh, I guess yesterday, as we're filming this, or two days ago, uh, we released our CPI data, which came in a little hotter than expected, caught a lot of people off guard, and we saw the, the reaction into the market yesterday. Yeah, kind of a painful one, I guess, for, I guess, yesterday. Big selling day, kind of shocking. So last night on the on our radio show that we do live on WMT, we were talking about this and you know, yeah, the markets were down four to five percent yesterday, but we're really just back to where we were seven days ago. So if we would have had seven days of sideways markets, nobody would feel like this huge, oh my gosh, something really bad is happening. And what I think happened, and I may or may not be right, people were maybe expecting the CPI number to have peaked and start to come down and expecting maybe a 50 basis point rate increase here at the next meeting in September. And I think now with this number, it almost, almost certain it's going to be 75 and there's people pricing in 1% now. So we're going to see what happens. So there's a lot of really important information coming out next week. But in general, if you look at the, the economy worldwide, they're starting to see some slowing in all of these other countries. They're starting to raise their their interest rates too. Um, I guess in you know, with the ECB, it's called their main refinancing rate. Um, but it was an unprecedented increase for them. And we saw, so we saw how markets reacted on the 13th to the, you know, more than expected inflation. I think we've been talking about that all year that the inflation numbers, every time they come out, there's going to be some reaction, good or bad. If it's what we expect, probably good. If it's worse than expected, probably bad. So that, that's consi- that's been consistent all year long. And I think, I think there were some people maybe getting a little bit ahead of themselves with the Federal Reserve talk and them talking about maybe not being uh, not raising rates as much as possible. And they've been pretty clear um, starting into the last year that they're going to do what it takes to um, stop inflation. So, you know, and I, there was some talk of a Fed pivot and all that, like what, since probably in the month of July and August. I think that's gone. The the days yeah. of accommodative monetary policy, those are over. And it's so interesting that we're talking about monetary policy. If you remember back to the election, we talked about, hey, what really affects the markets? Is it the president? Because that was the key thing. And sure, some of the some of the presidents now, past history, they they affect some of this policy. But monetary policy is really what moves most markets in a dramatic fashion. And it's it's what they operate on. Yeah, we, we operate right, monthly far, on numbers yeah. that come out and forecasts. And the, the only thing I feel like with this inflation number is Maybe you have to peel back the carrot a little bit because I can show you numbers where housing is decreasing. I've had 13 straight weeks of you know fuel prices and gasoline going down. So there are places that we are starting to see inflation tick down. And just, you know, I think the biggest thing is we have inventories at places right now of consumer goods that we are going to see 
some sales. I was watching some a few shows yesterday and they were talking about on CNBC talking about how, you know, you really haven't seen a sale anywhere for two years. There hasn't been a sale on TVs. There's inventory that's going to get blown out this Christmas season. We're going to see sales again. You so no longer Doug, no longer can sell your car for more than what you bought it for. Doug Wagner, who hosts our live radio show, he emailed an article from MasterCard. And it's kind of insightful into the overall environment we're in. But MasterCard is expecting a big holiday season as far as consumer spending. And one of the reasons was because of the excess inventory, there's going to be sales. And so they're just expecting like a big Black Friday, just a lot of things. Um, and the part of the article just talking about the excess inventory and how we're going to see some sales and then probably even, and I guess it's speculation because you don't know what's going to happen, but they're saying even the month leading up to Black Friday, there's going to be pre-Black Friday sales and just a lot of things that um, I think should probably help because, you know, like you said, we haven't really seen sales the last couple of years. Well, we're going to. So I'm actually looking forward to that. On my screen porch in my house, I've got a original Panasonic plasma TV. I don't even know if they make plasma TVs anymore, but bought this in like 04, 05, and it was at the time cutting edge. I can't kill this thing. I leave it outside all winter. You know, it's covered. It's a good but, TV. But it gets really, really cold. So now when I turn it on, though, it has all this, like, red background to it until it gets warmed up. So I'm due for a TV, and my wife keeps asking when I'm going to replace it. In the last two years, I'm like, well, I just don't want to go spend what it's going to take to get a new TV out here. I'm hoping for that Black Friday sale. According to MasterCard, you're going to see one. I hope so. I hope so. Um, and, I, you know, there's something other – Something else interesting, I, you know, I watch, I'm pretty tuned into financial media because number one, we need to talk about it because everybody else is. And number two, I like to hear what people say. And we still have this sect of people, or I guess pundits out there that believe there's still going to be this cataclysmic crash. You know, there's Michael Burry's of the world, the Harry Dents. There's a few of them. But what's interesting in the past, like, two to three weeks, there's been a few people coming out of the woodwork saying, hey, look, now might be the time to get in. Jeremy Siegel, who's a Wharton professor, he's been pounding the table that, look, you'll be happy if you're in the market right now. It's time to buy because he made the point that we talk about all the time. Once it starts to run, it's going to be really hard to get in. You're going to see it run 8, 10, 12%, and you might not get back in. And that's what everybody's waiting for. Right? Everybody's waiting for the all clear sign. There's not going to be an all clear sign. You're never no, going to find. There never is. There's never just a clear day that, okay, now's the time. You're not going to, trying to find the bottom of a market, that's not going to happen unless you're dollar cost averaging. If you have a systematic investment plan to dollar cost average, then you'll find the market, mark, you'll find the bottom with some of your money. But if you have a big chunk of money, the chances of you finding the exact bottom are very, very low. If you do, you probably got lucky. Well, sure. Of course, that's exactly what happened. Or you had sometimes the crystal ball that no one else has. Sometimes better to be lucky than be good, I guess. And I was thinking about this the other day. You know, they always talk about it's better to be early than, than late. Yeah. And what they're talking, most of the time, they're talking about getting out of a market because they think they're market timers. It works the same way. Better to be early than late to get back in the market. 
if you have cash or you had came into some money or you had a CD or something come due, it's better to be early than late. And I was looking at a chart the other day that showed how much money is still in money market funds. And I think it lends to what Jeremy Siegel was talking about when they're saying it's time to get in because the, the money just sitting on the sidelines, eventually it's going to go somewhere. People aren't just going to park cash forever. So, and it was showing this chart I was looking at, just showing how much money market fund money there is right now compared to the last few years. And if people start buying and the market starts running up and then, and, and then you get into that mentality, well, I'm going to wait for it to pull back again. And this year you could, you actually could have done that a few times, right? We've had plenty of bear market rallies this year where we trade up for a while and then trade back down. And, but I think the key is you got to use those negative trading days or a string of them as an entry point for some of your money. Maybe you're not going to do all of it, but at some point you have to decide, okay, I am going to spend some cash. I'm going to pick some things and buy them. If you're going to be a long-term investor. And if you're listening to our show, you probably are. So it, I, I would use the bad trading days and the strings of those as an entry point for at least some cash that you have on the sideline. That's what I would do. I was reading a Motley Fool article the other day, and uh, this is going back to 1980, talking about how we've had 20 different occasions where the market's fallen over 20%, including you know the Great Recession where it's down 57, 57%. Early 2000s, it fell 50 since 1980, the S&Ps earned nearly 3,600%. Yeah, that's so the person return. did nothing. And what's interesting about this is at the bottom, the Motley Fool gives the secret to making money in the stock market. And I'm sure every single person on this show, listening or watching, whatever you're doing, you want to know what the secret is. We know the secret. The Buying se all the time, staying invested. I'm going to, I'm quoting. Okay. While it can be intimidating, one of the best ways to maximize your earnings is to continue to invest during downturns. We've pounded the table that systematic investing, that's a winner for most people. And most people out there with their largest asset, which for most people is our 401k, largest investable asset, your house might be your largest asset, largest investable asset, they're doing that. They're systematically putting money in on the first and the 15th. So whether they know they're exhibiting good investor behavior, they are. Well, that that's the beauty of the 401k is no matter how you do it, it's going to be a systematic buying plan because it's just every paycheck, a little bit goes in and you buy more investments. And then that's why 401ks work. That's why they're such a good tool and why a lot of people have built a lot of wealth in their 401k because it's just a systematic investing plan. It's pretty simple. So we're starting to come up on the end of the year, and I know we always do like an end of the year planning um, show. But I, I had a situation with a client the other day that really got me thinking about one of the things that people overlook with a lot of their money, and, and it happens a lot with your workplace 401k. It probably doesn't happen so much with your investment advisor, um, but with your workplace 401k it does, and there's some critical beneficiary mistakes that people make. They're just not paying attention to it. And part of it is if you go log into your 401k account, what's everybody focused on? The balance. The balance. That's it. 
Um, How much money do I have? When you meet, if you have an advisor helping you with something, a lot of times in the, their reviews, they're prepping, hey, here's the beneficiaries. Do they look good? And it's probably not every time you meet with them, but you know, hey, every couple of years, have your beneficiaries changed? Are they still the same? Is this how you want them? But one place that's vastly overlooked is the 401k because no one's bringing it up to them. And, and I, I know certain situations of people I actually know they're non-clients that this has happened to. You know, they passed away and the ex-wife got the money instead of the current wife or the current kids. Oh, because she was still primary beneficiary. Never changed the beneficiary. Yeah. And that, guess that's what? Boo -boo. That's you, an owie. You cannot unwind it. Yeah, that's done. Yeah, so that's... So let's talk it's just about another. Yeah, it's just another prudent thing to be aware of. Who are your beneficiaries on your accounts? Yeah. So let's talk about that, though. Like, what are the what are the top mistakes that we see? And the number one mistake is not naming a beneficiary at all. And typically, on like an IRA or a four hundred one k, they're going to require that you have a primary beneficiary listed but they don't require a contingent. And for those that don't know what a contingent beneficiary is, that just says if something happens to yourself and the primary beneficiary at the same time, what happens to this money? Goes to the contingent beneficiary. Right. If you don't have one listed, guess what happens? It goes to where someone else decides and not you. Yeah, it just becomes part of your estate then at that point. Yeah, and so that's on IRAs, insurance products. But the one thing people don't think about is you can put beneficiary designations on your bank account. You can add them to your investment accounts that aren't IRAs or Roth IRAs or life insurance or a new, or you should say insurance products. You can add beneficiary designations to them, which helps, you know, um, not go through probate. It directs your money how you want it to be directed. I know a lot of people think, well, yeah, I have a will. Wills are great. You should have one. But if you can have a direct beneficiary designation, why wouldn't you? Well, you should. It makes everything easier. Beneficiaries on accounts uh, take precedent over a will anyway, right? We know that. If you have named beneficiaries on your accounts, that's who's going to inherit those. So it's really, it's one of the, it's a really simple way to just make sure if anything unfortunate happens, there's a clean way for your family to deal with it, right? And certainly in the case of, well, even when someone loses a parent, because, you know, in our office, we have death claims all the time. It's just, we've been in business for a long time. And it's, most of our clients have named beneficiaries on their accounts and it makes everything so much easier. Because then it's just a matter of doing paperwork, getting it processed, and getting everything done for those beneficiaries. Where in a situation where there isn't, well, now everything is just, it's subject to more, right? There's just more layers of rigmarole and stuff to go through. So it makes it harder on your, whoever is inheriting your stuff. You know, and I, and I, I think of two circumstances with two different people that are clients where that a let's just say a parent pass away. One, before they passed away, they, before the parent passed away, they'd set up basically either joint ownership or beneficiary des designations on every single account that they could. Their whole probate process and settling the estate was very, very minimal. They didn't have to wait. 
I think of the most recent experience I've had with a client whose parent passed away and we weren't the advisors on it. It was they utilized a will and a trust. It's taken nine months to get it figured out versus that of a few weeks. That's the difference. Right. And people don't think about it. You know, one of the other places that I, I see this, um, some issues arise, Elias, around failing to take into account special circumstances for, you know, someone's family dynamic. Yeah, and these would be situations where maybe a beneficiary shouldn't receive an asset directly. It could, uh, you know, someone with maybe special needs or someone with an inability to manage assets or they have issues with debt. Um, just anything that would kind of hamper their ability to manage the funds. And you can take in those into consideration. And a lot of times what you'll see in those situations is the beneficiary, that portion, that portion of someone's account will be designated to like the trustee of a trust under a will of someone who's supposed to help be in charge of that specific individual in a family. And that's a good way to do it because then they, they can inherit what you want them to receive, but then also have the protection in place and the things that they would need to actually receive that and manage that money uh, responsibly and appropriately for themselves. The third one I see, and, and you don't see it a lot, but it does happen, is getting the name wrong. And I'm sure most parents know how to spell their kids' names. And they're like, oh, I'd never get the name wrong. But what happens, happens are kids get married. Yeah, that, and that's the most common one is a, is a daughter will get married and change her name and then ha now has to prove and it doesn't prove that the name is doesn't changed. mean they're not going to get paid. It's just making the process more difficult. Yeah, And, and the reason you have beneficiaries to make this simple, but if it's not done correctly or your daughter got married and your beneficiary designation was six years ago and your daughter was still under her maiden name, then she's going to have to provide proof, you know, marriage certificate, proof of name change, all that stuff versus just, you could have just changed it to the last name and called it good and moved on down the road. So that's a really easy one to, to get right and, or fix. Well, and a couple of years ago, we had one that the current name of the beneficiary was her name Two names Her name, ago. Yeah, it was two names ago. So then that was a whole different level of tracking down documents. And some of them were very old and well, and client you, wasn't sure exactly even where she kept all that stuff. And here's the thing. If you had a daughter get married, I'm using daughters because typically where you see a name change, I guess it could be the other way too. But if you have a family member get married and their name changes, you should say, hey, we had someone get married and their name changed. Let's update the beneficiary information. It's that simple. Yeah, it's a good, it is you a know, good thing. We don't do. necessarily know when people's kids get married or divorced and remarried. Like, if we get invited to the wedding, then we know. We're getting invited more funerals and weddings now. <laughs> it's a sad dynamic. Uh, four, forgetting to update your beneficiaries over time. Two times this, maybe three times you'd want to update this or make sure you do one if you have a child who now is of legal age and they are a beneficiary of yours. You know, I, I'll never forget this. My parents had my grandparents as their contingent beneficiary when I was like six. Well, when I was 22, I was reviewing this, 23, I guess, reviewing this with my parents. And I'm an only child. They still had grandma and grandpa as the beneficiary. 
like you, you can change that now. I'm of legal age, but people don't think about it. You, if you've been at Rockwell for 35 years, you may not have checked your beneficiary designations because you oh, checked easily. your balance. Yeah, so yeah, easily. That's one. When um, you get kids of legal age, two, somebody gets married, and three, the other time to really check it is if you get a divorce. You want to make sure the money is going to where you want it to go to. And once again, it's very easy to forget about the workplace retirement plan in doing that. Um, And then five, where we see mistakes is not reviewing your beneficiary choices with legal planners or financial advisors. Um, This is really the best way to make sure your beneficiaries are right. If you have a legal professional and your advisors will guide you. But go to your attorney or your estate planning group that you are utilizing Ask them exactly how do you want my beneficiary designation on on these accounts? What makes most sense for my financial situation and where I'm at and what I want to accomplish with my money? What's the best way to do it? That That is a good idea. And as far as any financial advisor you might work with, they should very, that information should be readily available to be able to be able to provide who are the current beneficiaries on your account. And then also, if you need to make any changes, help you with the paperwork, which is an important thing to do if you are going to make any changes. So we've heard a lot about uh, recently people struggling financially through COVID because of inflation. And I ran across an article and it was the top 10 financial priorities for Americans. And I just thought it was interesting what some of these were. But number 10 on this list was paying for long-term care expenses. Um, 9% of the people said this was a financial priority for them. Um, And it is a growing problem. In fact, we had a call on our radio show last night from from a woman. She called anonymously. And if you want to hear the show, you can go to premierinvestmentsofiowa.com and I think the show will be out there. You can hear her question. But it was, hey, how do I finance long-term care? Because her husband had a uh, he had dementia and they'd paid for long-term care insurance for 25 years. They ended up dropping the long-term care insurance because the premiums got so expensive they couldn't afford it. And now she's trying to figure out how to pay for the long-term care. And... Long story short, you know, we always talk about the ways to pay for it. You can be self-insured means you have enough money to pay for the in-home health care, assisted living, all that stuff yourself. Two, you could buy an insurance policy from a insurance company to help cover the cost. Or three, you spend your assets and go on, go on Title 19. And I don't know what their situation will be, but it is becoming more, more center focused for people and being concerned about it because we are seeing people live longer. And we're seeing people that are living longer have some kind of mental incapacity where they're going to need or require care at some point in the future. And it is it's a it is a concern, especially for clients as they get older. A lot of people ask and it's a hard problem to solve right now because, yeah, what you just talked about, those are the options. But. If someone does want to buy an insurance policy for long-term care, they're very expensive. I mean, we know that being in the business, they're they're very expensive and just it's it's hard to justify sometimes paying that amount of premium for that long. Um, 
certainly for something that you have no idea if you're ever going to use it or not. And that's really people struggle wrapping their mind around that and doing it. And I understand that. That's one part of the other part of it. The benefits aren't near as good as they used to be. If you start to do the cost analysis on this, in some cases, it's hard to really make the numbers work out. Um, number nine, supporting parents. 12% of respondents said reporting or supporting parents was uh, their top financial priority right now. They said when they're young, mom and dad took care of you. Now it's your turn. I guess that's probably one. Well, I mean, this probably goes along with number 10. Because if you think about when you need to start, start supporting a parent, it's at the point where they probably can't drive. They probably can't. And I don't think they're talking about financial support. Like maybe at some level, but part of this is probably more, hey, mom and dad can't afford the nursing home. I don't want to see them go or I don't want them to spend all their money. So I'll go support them with my time or help them finance you with a few things that I can. Um, And I see that happening as we have an aging population. There are more kids starting to take care of parents. They call them the sandwich generation. They're taking care of their parents and they're taking care of their own kids. I'm sure mom and dad appreciate that, though. If you're taking care of them and driving them to their appointments they need to go to, helping them get their groceries. Well, just, okay, think about this. Let's say you're 56 years old. You had kids late in life. Right now, you could be taking care of your parents and your kids at exactly the same time. That would be a tough job. That's a lot of burden. Yeah, that'd be a tough job. I mean, I I have two kids. I know you're going to have three. I couldn't imagine throwing a couple of parents I had to not that we wouldn't just throwing them into the mix and making it even harder. Number eight, creating an inheritance or financial legacy. Uh, this is interesting because I would say in our office, I don't know what the split is, but we have some clients who are like, I'm going to spend every dollar I have and others who want to leave something substantial to their kids. And this is all personal preference. We don't don't ever pass judgment on this um yeah to to us it's whatever they we can facilitate however they want to do it well this is where having a financial plan of some kind makes sense you know if if your plan is you want to leave a legacy it's probably better to plan for it earlier rather than later part of the reason is we can position assets that transfer the most tax efficient way to the next generation. It might change how you spend assets during retirement. If your goal is to transfer assets and you have, let's say a Roth Roth IRA, or you have a Roth 401k, and you have a traditional 401k or IRA, you might spend down the taxable assets first, knowing that those Roth accounts are going tax-free to the next generation. The, um, other, no- the, the other, I think, part of this we're seeing is there... There are a lot of people who, well, maybe not a lot, but it seems like it's more common now where people do want to spend more of their assets while they're alive on memories with their family instead of just leaving a legacy. It seems like we're helping more and more clients like figure out, well, how much extra can I spend in every year to do something fun with everyone and my, you know, my planning's still going to work out. Well, so and it seems like there's a mind shift there on what they're actually want to accomplish as well. I think that's wonderful because why wouldn't you want to see your family enjoy it? 
But I wouldn't even say, hey, you know, my grandchild needed a down payment for a house and we're never going to spend all this. And you gave them the down payment for their house and see the joy in their face and watch them enjoy it while you're alive. Because you're not going to see them enjoy it when you're deceased. And they're going to enjoy it. The average inheritance lasts 18 months. That's it. Someone's going to 18 enjoy months. that Someone's going to enjoy it. So you can enjoy watching them enjoy it. Or they're just going to enjoy it. Um, number seven, contributing. 17% of people said contributing to an education fund was of high priority to them. Um, that doesn't surprise me based upon all of the things that are in the news about the student loan, the debt forgiveness, and just the overall cost of what college is. You know, some people, I would imagine just, I'll use myself as an example. I don't know what the actual cost for a student is to have, could easily go look it up. But if I think back to when I went, I know it's more than when I went. So, and, and I know, cause we're in the industry and I run calculations, but I'm just looking at normal parents. If you asked your parents what it costs to go to college today, or even one of your friends that doesn't have kids in college, who's not in the financial business, they'd probably think it was what it was 15 years ago. I feel like they'd be shocked to hear what it actually costs. So I think what's come to light with all of the student loan talk and forgiving loans is people are like, wait a minute, what's it really cost to go? And then they find out they're like, man, I better start putting some money away if I want to help my kids with their college education. And I have opinions on this. And I believe that, you know, if you want to help your kids, that's great, but it shouldn't be at your, at the cost of your retirement. Meaning if you're not on track for retirement, I find it really difficult to start saving for a kid's college because a kid doesn't have to go in debt to go to college. I know plenty of people who worked their way and paid for all of college by working. A lot of people do that. Well, let's plenty. not let's not fool ourselves. College is not a full time job. It's not being in college is like being retired. I mean, it's yeah. one of the greatest experiences. It's like four or five. If you're doing it right, it's five years, but. A lot of people only try to go for four, but it's, yeah, it's even, I guess if you maybe like triple major or you're really committed to your academics, but let's be honest, most people are there for the social life, the sports at the school, having fun. They're going to get a degree too, but it's like, it's almost like you go to college and it's being like uh, retired part-time. I work nearly. You have way more autonomy in your schedule than, and I remember graduating, get, going to work, and then you're like, wow, I'm actually busy now. And then you get married and have a family, and that's a whole nother level of being busy. And then you think about how busy you thought you were when you were in school because you had to go to, what, four or five classes a week and do some homework. It's easy. I worked almost full time all the way through college. Just, I didn't see reason not to. Yeah, I did. I I was a, a server. I waited on tables. When oh, I, I was remember in that. I met I met one of your friends that at a restaurant in town, Red Lobster. That's where I worked. Home of the biscuit. Uh, number six, paying for healthcare expenses. Twenty one percent of people said that's their number one priority right now. Um, I don't think this ever goes away. People always have healthcare expenses, whether it's premiums for insurance or had a baby or whatever it is, health insurance keeps just going up. It's funny. I was listening to a 
CNBC on the radio last night, and they talked about how both political parties for the last two decades have vowed to bring down health care expenses, and they just keep going up. And the exact opposite is The exact opposites happened. Number five, just getting by to cover basic living expenses. And I would venture to guess two years ago, that was not number five. 28% of people said they're just trying to get by to cover basic living expenses. I want to know what this was two years ago. Because we talked about this on the radio show last night. Gas is up. Food's up. So there's a certain part of this economy and segment of people who are really struggling with their bills. There's another segment of the economy that doesn't even notice the inflation. There is. And inflation hits the bottom 25% of income earners or families, however you want to look at it. It hits them the hardest. Because they're already having the yeah, they're already having the hardest time getting by. And now just to go get groceries, it's more expensive. Put gas in their car to get to work, it's more expensive. Um, so yeah, about- this this is probably if I don't know when this survey was conducted, but if you did it today, this number might even be higher. There might be more people now that this is a big concern for them just getting by. Think about gas. Just for the normal person to go to work, if they were spending fifty dollars a week couple years ago, they're spending 80 to 90 a week. Well, 80 bucks that's a, a big week. big increase. Well, I mean, $30 a week, that's four weeks, 120 bucks. That's probably their cell phone bill. And then you add in groceries that were, you know, I heard the joke last night. It's now $100 a bag. For groceries? Yeah. I mean, we always used to call that whole paycheck, Whole Foods. We used to shop at Whole Foods. We're like, well, that's whole paycheck because your whole paycheck went to the groceries for one or two bags. But a guy last night on CNBC asked the Stu Giddy, he's like, yep, we all know it's $100 a bag for groceries at the grocery store. And it's not exactly accurate, but it's expensive. I went yesterday. I bought apples. I bought bananas and a gallon of milk. And my bill is $19. Apples, banana, gallon of milk. 19 bucks. How many apples and bananas? Six bananas, eight apples. Really? And a milk. And 20 bucks. It's 19 yeah. bucks. Yeah, that's a lot for that. And, and the thing is, those are healthy items. Yeah, I could have went and got a bag of Doritos. I could have got, I still had the milk. I could have got Doritos and Pringles and milk, and it would have been 11 bucks. And that's part of the problem. They've but incentivized to make the worst food There's less food Doritos in that bag now. Elias, number four on the list with 29% of respondents supporting their children. Uh, what age kids are we talking about yeah, here? Yeah, and that's the problem with this. I don't know, but here's what I'd tell you. I'm going to guess it's probably under 18 because of 18 or 21, or at least, at least under college age. And here's why I'm, I'm going to guess. I'm going to take my own situation. We have inflation on food. You have inflation on all of these things around you. And then you throw in with a couple of kids who are six and three and they're starting to be involved in stuff. Well, we do dance. We do for one child, we do dance. We do gymnastics and we do voice. And I know what those three things cost. And then if you multiply it by two, most people are probably struggling to keep their kids involved in things and pay their bills and groceries and enjoy some of their own stuff. I mean, I, 
I know kind of what those cost. My wife handles that, but I know they're not inexpensive activities. Kids are expensive. And I got another one on the way, so my life's just going to get more expensive here in about a week or two. Groceries, well, groceries won't go up for now, but I, I got to tell you something funny. That groceries happened. won't, but when I have three kids and three different activities. So since you know my girls, you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate this. Yesterday, my wife said to my oldest, she goes, I'm hangry. And she goes, what's hangry, mom? She goes, well, I'm hungry and angry. And my oldest daughter goes, that's me all the time, mom. But I thought that was funny from a little from a little six year old. But she, going back to things getting more expensive, I was home last Saturday with him by myself. Saturday or Sunday, um, my wife was out doing things. And I swear I just sat in the kitchen all day. I was making food for him constantly all day. I was I need a snack. I want some cheese. I want an apple. Like all day. They're growing. They them. need to eat. Uh, number three, building emergency savings. 39% said this was important. And I think this is great because when a rainy day happens, and things have been pretty good here recently. Economy is good. We have low unemployment. But 39% of people want to build an emergency savings account. And what they're doing is they're preparing for the unknown. So let's think about what, what the Fed is doing. They're trying to slow the economy. As the economy slows, that's going to cause unemployment to rise. Because as mm -hmm. companies slow and their revenues go down, what do they do? They lay people off. I think Wells Fargo just laid off a massive amount of people in their mortgage division because nobody's refinancing loans. They don't need all these people. Well, there's a trickle down there as we lay people off. you know. And if you get laid off, this is why you want a six-month emergency account. You want to have time to go find the next job. We're fortunate right now it's easy to find a job. It hasn't always been that way, and it may not always continue to be that way. Yeah, and no, no one, this type of stuff we talk about, we probably talked about it back in the pandemic, how important an emergency fund or emergency savings is. And there's probably enough people the last two years that either that didn't have an appropriate emergency fund. And then we had this global pandemic and it's probably more, it's more of a priority now for more people. Number two, saving for retirement, 52% of people say this is their number one priority. Um, I mean, I guess it's become going to get more important for people. And, and here's why. If you think back to, I don't know, 35 years ago, most people had a pension. Today, if you're new to the workforce, meaning you're under 30, most people aren't getting a pension. And if you do, you probably work for an insurance company. I know there's a few insurance companies, large insurance companies that still offer pensions. Most people don't offer a pension anymore. It's a 401k, which means you have to save for retirement. You're in charge of your own future benefits. And uh, it's gonna. this is going to become the number one priority because otherwise people are going to wake up. And they're not going to have anything. They're going to see their parents who's – our parents' parents didn't teach our parents how to save money because they had a pension. No. They didn't have to save for retirement. You know what year the 401k was enacted? 1974. I see you're the 401k. Eurisa came so out and that's when, when it was created. So the 401k has only been around for, you know, less than 50 years. Yeah. For, it, from the that Roth perspective, IRA, it's still relatively new. It's still relatively new. The Roth IRA, that's relatively new. That was in the 90s. Like these tools haven't been around that long. So 
a lot of the people who were retired, they didn't have to worry about this. They had a pension. They worked at Fairway for 40 years. They retired with a gold watch and a pension and took Social Security. And life was good. But and with I, no pensions, people are going to have to pay more attention to what they are saving for retirement. I think we can agree that Americans are really not the best savers either. Americans are very good at spending money. We're probably the best consumers in well, the entire world. Well, that leads into the world. next one. We, paying we off like debt. Paying off debt. Why are people in debt? They can't avoid spending. It's way more, and it's true. It's more fun to spend it than save it. 55% of Americans too. said their financial priority right now is paying off debt. And I'm going to guess over that. Over half. And I'm going to guess that most of this is not mortgage debt. Most people aren't too worried about paying off their mortgage debt. They're worried about paying off their credit card debt. And that yes. credit card debt is getting whacked right now. It's because those rising. rates went from 16% to 22 23%. You think about a person, if you're carrying $50,000 in credit card debt, you're paying somebody 10000 a year. That's a hefty fee I watched Warren, money. I watched a Warren Buffett clip two or three days ago. And someone said, what's the number one best investment advice you could give somebody? He said, well, if you have a credit card, pay it off. And the person goes, but why? He goes, well, you're paying 12, 16, 18% on that card. Where are you going to go find an investment that pays 12 or 16 or 18% a year? He goes, that doesn't exist. Not on a static return because that's a 12% every year, right? There's zero variance. It's not like a stock market that can average 12. There's zero variance. And he joked, he goes, hey, he goes, if you don't want to pay it off, you bring your stuff over to me. And if I have, if you have good enough credit, I'll loan you the money at 12%. Everybody kind of chuckled because Warren's like, "Of course like, oh. he will." Yeah, so that's the number one priority for people. It's going to remain the number one one priority, um, especially with inflation. We've actually started to see credit card balances start to increase. We talked about this on the radio show last night. People still aren't willing to give up their lifestyle, even though things are getting more expensive. And what I mean by that is they're out seeing their friends on Instagram taking a vacation. They got a new car, a new watch, whatever they got. Things are getting more expensive and they're not willing to give up all the niceties of life. They're not willing to give up their $9 Starbucks. And yeah. guess what they do? They put it on the credit card until it's painful. the credit painful. card company finance it. it. Yep. So with that said, uh, hope everybody takes to heart some of these 10 financial priorities. Maybe pick one or two for yourself that you want to work on. And with that said, do you have anything else to talk about today, Elias? I don't, but everyone, thank you for listening. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.